Good day. I'm Bill Niskanen, the Senior Economist and Chairman Emeritus of the Cato Institute. And we're here to discuss a very important and very complex issue today, and that is the status of the banking industry and what might be done with it. Let me uh, first read a few paragraphs from uh, the special section on the banking industry in The Economist magazine three weeks ago. Banking is the industry that failed. Banks are meant to allocate capital to businesses and consumers efficiently. Instead, they ladled credit to anyone who wanted it. Banks are supposed to make money by skillfully managing the risk of transforming short-term debt into long-term loans. Instead, they were undone by it. They are supposed to expedite the flow of credit through economies. Instead, they ended up blocking it. The costs of this failure are massive. Frantic efforts by governments to save their financial systems and buoy their economies will do long-term damage to public finances. Despite public rage over bank bailouts, the industry itself has been has comprehensively failed its owners. The scale of wealth destruction for shareholders has been breathtaking. The total market capitalization of the industry fell by more than half in 2008, erasing all the gains that they made since 2003. Employees have scarcely done better. America's financial service firms have shed almost half a million jobs since the peak in December 2006, more than half of them in the past seven months. Many are gone for good. The pain is nowhere near over. The credit crunch has been a series of multiple crises, starting with subprime mortgages in America and progressively sweeping through asset classes and geographies. With so much red ink to, still to be spilled, it may seem premature to ask what the future of banking looks like. I think that's right, but it is not premature to ask what it might look like and how, how it may, might best be structured. And we're favored this afternoon by having two um, people who've written a very a good uh, recent uh, proposal in this regard. The proposal in that sense is not all that new. It's been promoted by Henry Simons, by Irving Fisher, by Frank Knight, many of the three of the leading economists of the 1930s under the name of narrow banking. And the proposal that will be talked about uh, in a minute or two will uh, be uh, a proposal that is being designed specifically by our speakers, and they call limited purpose uh, banking. Uh, our first speaker is John Goodman. John is president of the uh, National Capital Policy and uh, National Center for Policy Analysis in Dallas. Uh, that does uh, policy analysis on a wide range of activities. John is also an expert in health issues and uh, wrote a very fine book called Patient Power that Cato published in 1993, so it's been around for a while. John uh, will be speaking first. Welcome, John. Thank you, Bill, for that a very kind introduction. Those of you who watched 60 Minutes last night saw Ben Bernanke, chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, uh, discuss the Lehman Brothers' failure and uh, make the observation that, based on that episode, the federal government simply cannot allow large institutions to fail. 
He went on to say how angry he got at AIG over the decisions they were making, but no matter how bad those decisions were, he had learned the lesson, and AIG could not be allowed to fail. So what we have is a financial system in which large institutions are putting you as taxpayers at risk without your knowledge and without your consent. And the problem does not stop there. When you make a deposit at a commercial bank, the bank is able to use your deposit as collateral to leverage up to 10 to 1 and make risky loans uh, without consulting you. Uh, If you make a deposit with a broker, the leverage can be 30 to 1, again, with all kinds of decisions that involve no input from you. If you pay premiums to an insurance company, you might suppose those premiums are being pooled with premiums paid by others to pay off claims. But unbeknownst to you, the insurer could do what AIG did and make very risky, highly leveraged gambles, again, without your knowledge uh, or consent. Now, years ago, Murray Rothbard uh, claimed that uh, fractional reserve banking is fraud. And were he alive today, he would probably say that what Bear Stearns did and what AIG did uh, were also fraud. Uh, As a technical matter, uh, Rothbard was probably wrong on the law. Uh, But beyond the law, he certainly had a point. Uh, Certainly what we have here are contracts of adhesion, so the lawyers call them, Uh, When you open a deposit at a commercial bank, or you cannot uh, uh, deposit money in a commercial bank without agreeing that they can uh, engage in the leverage and the risky loans that that I previously uh, described. It's worth noting that in the medical area, uh, the courts uh, often refuse to enforce contracts of of adhesion, and an argument can be made that they should refuse to enforce such contracts in the financial world as well, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's first ask, are there social benefits from having the financial system arranged the way we have it? Uh, Does the arrangement that I have described uh, increase the total amount of savings? I think not. Uh, Does it increase the real amount of investment in society? Again, I think the answer is no. Does it change or alter the flow of real loanable funds? Again, I think the answer is no. Does it... um, does it lower transactions cost in any socially beneficial way? Uh, not, not that I can see. So although the benefits of the current arrangement uh, are not at all obvious, uh, it turns out that there are serious social costs that many of you are already familiar with. We have a system that encourages financial institutions to borrow short and lend long. Uh, such a system is inherently unstable. When the panic occurs, people try to withdraw their funds, and when they do that, the results are cascading. It's hard to imagine a fractional uh, reserve banking system without two features, government-backed deposit insurance uh, for the depositors and government controls on the lending portfolio of the bank. Neither of these activities, however, are adequate, and, uh, and neither are particularly desirable. And yet we're about to expand this entire philosophy to the rest of the financial system. Too big to fail is implicit deposit insurance for the rest of the system. And uh, we're about to impose uh, uh, all kinds of regulations to overcome the perverse incentives that that creates. And these regulations may well do more harm than good. Now, Larry Kolikoff and I believe there's a better way, uh, a better way to arrange the financial system uh, uh, which has the benefits but without the, the, the cost of what we have today. 
It involves letting financial intermediaries specialize in financial intermediation and doing nothing else. So banks, near banks, insurance companies, indeed all credit market institutions would not themselves make risky investments. Instead, uh, these intermediaries would put savers and investors together. They would be intermediaries. Or when engaging insurance, they would uh, accumulate uh, premiums and, and pool risks. Under what we call limited purpose banking, uh, a commercial bank would adopt the mutual fund model uh, with cash added as an additional option uh, for an account. So when you open a checking account at a commercial bank, which would in effect be a mutual fund checking account, um, your account would be fully backed by cash. Uh, there would be no need for an FDIC or for other regulations that we have today. If you opened a savings account, which again would be a mutual fund account, you could have the account backed by treasury bills or by commercial paper or by other securities that you, you choose. But again, no need for an FDIC, no need for the uh, loan portfolio regulations that we have today. The principle here is no one should be able to put you at risk without your knowledge or consent. What this means is that credit market institutions do not make risky gambles using your deposits as collateral. Individuals, on the other hand, can make any risky investment uh, that they like. There's no limit to how much risk the individual can take. Uh, the credit market institutions are not to take any risk at all. What's the role of government in, uh, in this uh, new system? Essentially, it does two things. It has a night watchman role to make sure that uh, cash behind the checking account is really there in the bank or in the, uh, in the mutual fund. And it has a certification role, which is to examine the various funds and to rate them and to publish, uh, publish its findings so they're well known to the public. The night watchman function prevents theft. The certification function prevents fraud. Uh, since we're here at the Cato Institute today, I think it's interesting to observe that if credit market institutions are restricted to their proper role, government can be restricted to its proper role as well. Thank you. Our second speaker is Larry Kotlikoff, who's um, a professor of economics at Boston University and a senior fellow at the National Center for Policy Analysis. Now, a few years ago, Larry worked for Bill Poole and for me when uh, Bill and I were uh, members of the Council of Economic Advisors, and Larry was one of the more valuable members of our staff. Larry? Thanks, thanks, Bill. Uh, thanks to uh, Cato for having us here. Let me just expand a little bit on uh, some of the uh, things John put so well. Uh, first of all, let's, let's uh, kind of look around at our economy and realize that things are uh, in, in obviously terrible shape. We have a 9.4% unemployment as of yesterday was announced. We have maybe 12 or 13 million people un unemployed. I think that's up from 7, 7 million more than at the beginning of this problem. We have uh, the uh, largest insurance company in the world now owned by the U.S. government, the largest, largest mortgage company in the world, two largest ones, I guess, owned by the government. We have the government having the major ownership of General Motors, a, major, a very major share of 
Citi, Citigroup, which I guess is the largest or one of the largest banks in the world, things are a whole lot different than they were, right, uh, a year ago. And as John said, the market has, financial markets have imploded. Housing prices are down 29% since their peak. They could fall another 20%. So we're not out of the woods uh, yet. Let's hope we are out of the woods. Let's hope that if this policy can't be changed, I think it's on the wrong course. Uh, but let's hope that if it doesn't get changed, that it will succeed. Uh, but what I want to talk to you about is uh, the more details of this uh, limited purpose banking proposal. Uh, the article that uh, prompted Bill Niskanen to uh, invite us to come was published in the New Republic. Now, the New Republic is uh, generally viewed as a somewhat left of center publication, right? Cato is viewed as a somewhat right of center institution. The fact that both the New Republic and Cato were interested in this proposal, the fact that the proposal has been carried in Bloomberg.com, in the Financial Times, a version was I wrote up uh, for the Dallas Morning News column I did for the, the Boston Globe. Uh, the fact that uh, so many of these publications, the American Interest also ran a piece on limited purpose banking. The fact that these publications on all sides of the political aisle uh, are interested in this means that it's not really part partisan. It's really about how to fix the financial system, politics aside. And uh, the, uh, the problems that we've seen here in this whole episode include fraud and malfeasance, liar mortgages, uh, but also insider rating, companies doing the rating, uh, getting paid to do to rate uh, the companies that they're uh, otherwise working for. Uh, we've seen too big to fail, moral, that moral hazard associated with that, John referenced. Limited liability pays, plays a big role here because when uh, the head of Lehman Brothers leverages his company 30 to 1. He knows that his yachts are safe. He knows his houses in different parts of the world, that uh, that rarefied wall world where they have uh, walled uh, security gates, uh, that those houses are safe. So uh, his own personal wealth was not at stake in uh, gambling the way he did, gambling with the taxpayer's money in, to a large extent, or the tax and the wealth our economy's well-being. Uh, we've had non-disclosure. To this moment, we do not know the particulars of what AIG's credit default swap portfolio is. They say on their website, they say in their annual report about a year ago, they had $450 billion in credit default swaps uh, on AAA mortgage security, backed securities. If you look in March of this year, they say they have $1.6 trillion in credit default swaps outstanding. So it's who knows exactly how much they have in credit default swaps, but $1.6 trillion is a huge number. If that means that, that the taxpayers have to come up with $1.6 trillion, which is kind of what AIG is saying on their PowerPoint that they released in, in March about why it's so important for the U.S. government to keep bailing out AIG, they said, well, there's $1.6 trillion in credit default swaps that uh, if you guys don't cover it, um, all hell is going to break loose. May be true. That's what we've gotten ourselves into here. Uh, we've had improper custody relations. Uh, uh, in the case of Madoff, he was self-custodying. The SEC went in there twice and somehow 
didn't catch the fact that he was being his own custody or check whether there's actually any securities there. Uh, we've had, in general, a policy of insuring the uninsurable. When AIG writes these credit default swaps uh, that it knows it can't cover if the economy goes south, then it's insuring the uninsurable. But this is not just AIG. This is standard insurance uh, market practice. If you think about life insurance companies that are routinely issuing standard life term life insurance policies, just take, take those policies that uh, promise to say, pay the face value on the policy if somebody dies, no matter what happens, no matter even if there's swine flu and we have a 10% mortality rate, when the typical mortality rate might, might be 2%. So they're making statements that they can't actually back up. And then they'll, if you push them on it, they'll say, well, they're state insurance funds. Those in state, state insurance funds would go belly up in about a nanosecond. So the uh, standard uh, bread and butter insurance industry are selling things that they can't sell. They're uh, engaged in, at some level in fraud uh, in, in their interactions with the public. They're relying on Uncle Sam to make good. So AIG says, you know, in its March... PowerPoint that there's $19 trillion in life insurance at, uh, in force in the world. And, and it implicitly is saying that if AIG were to fail, uh, somehow this $19 trillion would become a liability of governments around the world. If you talk to, the, uh, to some people in the insurance industry who are knowledgeable about cash surrender values, they'll tell you that there could be a run on the insurance industry this afternoon maybe, you know, right right now, uh, after this, to go after the $3 trillion or so in cash surrender values that it's outstanding, that the insurance company has said to its policyholders who have bought whole life policy and universal policies and GICs, guaranteed investment contracts, and annuity, equity index annuity policies and annuity policies of different kinds that, gee, we've accumulated some cash as part of this policy you bought for you. You can get back any time. So there could be run-on in the insurance companies to the tune of $3 trillion. The Fed is on the course of increasing the base money from about a trillion before the uh, recession began to about $4 trillion. If it had to cover three extra trillion in uh, credit defaults in, uh, to cover a life insurance uh, cash surrender value run, that would be up to $7 trillion in printing of money. The FDIC is sitting here with $4 trillion today in liabilities. It has $18 billion in reserves. If there was a run on the, the banks today, they would have to, Fed would have to print another $4 trillion. So you get a sense of what could happen here and how there's a great potential associated with all this for hyperinflation. Why would there ever be a run on the Fed, uh, on the banks, in this setting? I'm just trying to give you a little bit of a picture of the fragility of our current system that we've gotten ourselves into before I give you the solution, what we feel is the solution. But let me just raise that point. There could be a run on the, the banks because if, if people really under, were to understand that the FDIC is guaranteeing their dollars but not guaranteeing their purchasing power, they would have an, they would have an incentive to run on the bank if they thought others were going to run on the bank. The reason is that it's, if people were to go to the bank in mass, then everybody would realize the Fed is going to have to print $4 trillion bucks pretty much overnight, and that 
then they might suspect the prices are going to rise. Whether that rightly or wrongly, uh, they might worry about that. And they might stop taking, uh, they might start charging very high prices for real goods and services that they hand over for dollars they think are going to be worthless tomorrow. So prices could rise immediately. And then anybody who didn't go to the bank would realize that their money, when they finally get it out of the bank, is going to be worth less in real terms. So the FDIC is insuring our dollars. It's not insuring our purchasing power. So our system right now is very vulnerable, very vulnerable, very fragile, and subject to a, a bank run right at this moment, uh, if the public were to understand what's really involved here. So we've set up a system where the world's risky enough, but we, man, we, we uh, mankind here, have made our macro economy a whole lot riskier by the way we've set up our institutions. Uh, now, limited purpose banking, as John indicated, would uh, have banks do what they're supposed to do, which is financial intermediation. Their job is not to gamble with the taxpayers' chips. That's not really their purpose in life, which is to gamble on behalf of the taxpayer. We didn't put the banking system in place, or we're not tolerating that, you know. Not, we're not having a banking financial system and an insurance system uh, in order to, to let these folks gamble without our knowing exactly what gambles they're undertaking. And when I say we don't know what they're doing, it's not even clear the guys running these companies and gals knew what they were doing. When, when Lehman Brothers went from $80 a share to zero over about two weeks, it was clear that from one minute to the next, nobody, everybody realized that nobody knew exactly what assets and liabilities Lehman Brothers was holding and, and owed. Uh, and uh, same thing today with Fannie and Freddie. We don't know exactly what, you know, what mortgages the, they're holding. We can't go on the website and find uh, in this town in, in Akron, Ohio, in this, in this neighborhood, these are the Fannie and Freddie held mortgages and any details about that. So there's complete non-disclosure. The... Uh, let me give you an analogy before I tell you some more of the details about how, how limited purpose banking would work, uh, which is think about uh, the gas station industry. There are gas stations all over the country. They are very important. They are very important intermediary, intermediaries. Who do they intermediate between? They intermediate between refineries who are supplying gas and drivers who are demanding gas. And they're just the go-between. Now, imagine that all the gas stations would uh, get convinced by some maybe Harvard MBA. I'll beat up on Harvard. I'm from Boston University, but I went to Harvard, so I'm not, uh, not you know, just trying to kick them down. But you know, they have some very smart graduates, clearly, and very persuasive graduates. So maybe all those, uh, these gas station owners would be convinced more or less overnight, to, get, to engage in the following deal. They're gonna, they would sell uh, guaranteed, uh, guarantees to their customers, their drivers, uh, to uh, provide them gas in the future at $3.50 a gallon if the price of gas ever went above $3.50. They would sell right. So I would, I'm a gas station owner. I come to Bill. I say, Bill, here, look, here's a contract. Uh, you can buy up to 3,000 gallons over the next five years at 350 a gallon. Whenever and exercise this, uh, you know, whenever you want, 
We'll just tick off how many gallons you, you bought of that total uh, when you come in. So that's all fine and good. And the gas stations start bringing in a lot of money and maybe spending it and buying yachts or whatever they do. They put it under, give it to their relatives. Um, and then the price of gasoline goes to $10 a gallon. The refineries, there's an oil shortage. Refineries start charging $10 a gallon. And these gas companies have not hedged, them, hedged themselves. So all of the gas stations go broke. All of the owners of the gas stations walk away from the gas stations with the keys to the pump. We have no gas that can be had. None of the millions of drivers, there are, you know, 200 or so million cars out there. They can't be driven. Trucks can't be driven. The entire economy breaks down. That's the kind of problem uh, that we've kind of set ourselves up for in, in our financial system. But you can see that in this uh, setting where there's gasoline, the government would very quickly come in and say, look, gas station owners, you can't engage in that behavior again. Once we got things sorted out, they would say, enough is enough. We, the public, would say, you guys are critical financial intermediaries. There's a big externality from your all going under and all doing the same thing. We're not going to allow that to happen. If you owners of gasoline stations want to go gamble on the price of gas, Go buy a, a security that shorts whatever oil or goes long oil, uh, whatever you think the price is going to move, whatever direction, and gamble that way. But don't gamble with our economy. You're not allowed to do that anymore. So you as a, financial, as a gas station can only buy and sell gas, period. You can't hold risky assets. Well, that's the idea here with limited purpose banking. Uh, all, the, all the financial companies would live under the following rule. And what, what do I mean by a financial company? I'm going to refer to them as banks. Well, for purposes of this discussion, a bank is any financial company, any company that engages in financial, uh, uh, in, in buying and selling of, of financial securities, uh, or is in arranging for the buying and selling of financial securities, uh, would be called a bank, provided they have limited liability. So any financial company with limited liability is a bank. Now, that includes commercial banks, investment banks, insurance companies, private equity funds, hedge funds. Everybody except uh, proprietorships and partnerships who have unlimited liability, uh, if, they're, if they're engaged in financial services, and do have limited liability, they are called a bank, and there's going to be one set of regulations to deal with all banks. And the reason we want to have one set of regulations is we don't want to have uh, parties try and move from this regulatory system into that one uh, in order to get out from under uh, these restrictions on, on, uh, on sticking to their job, which is financial intermediation. Okay, so everybody's a bank that's got limited liability, and they are precluded from holding risky assets, just like a gasoline station is precluded from selling forward contracts, and they're also precluded from borrowing to invest. So Citigroup, for example, would not be allowed at the margin to buy more risky assets, nor would they be allowed to borrow 
to uh, invest in risky assets. They could borrow for their business operations. Now, their business operation is to set up mutual funds, is to sell mutual funds. The whole idea of limited-purpose banking is to transform the financial system into a pass-through mutual fund system. And there are some connections of this to limited to narrow banking, but this proposal goes far beyond narrow banking. So Citigroup would be setting itself up under the Investment Company Act of 1940 as a mutual fund, just like Fidelity Investments, TIA-CREF, uh, Vanguard. These are all mutual fund companies. Fidelity itself, uh, sorry, Citigroup itself, after a transition, would have no financial assets and no debt that was used to, to do anything than secure you know, the purchase of furniture and, and buildings for its mutual fund operations. Consequently, no financial company under limited purpose banking would ever be at risk, and none of them could ever fail. So we could never have this specter of major financial companies failing and putting a panic into the worldwide marketplace and leading us to where we are today. You know, if you really look at what's going on, we have moved from one good equilibrium to a bad equilibrium primarily because of panic. Fundamentally, we have a world where uh, there's coordination failures. And if I think that if I'm trying to sell something and thinking about hiring John to work for me to produce that something, and I'm trying to sell it to somebody else, but I think the other person's not going to buy it, then I'm not going to hire John. And therefore, John won't get any income, and therefore, John won't buy the other person's product, and therefore, the other person won't have the right, the, the, uh, a reason to, to, um, to hire his worker who would buy my product. That's the nature of the multiple equilibria that world that we live in. That's why having major financial companies go under one after another over a year has put this country down the tubes and the world down the tubes. And that wouldn't happen at all under limited-purpose banking. No financial company, no bank could fail. Now, every bank, however, would immediately be in the mutual fund business. So we now have a number of large number of mutual funds in the country and the world operating. They handle $12 trillion. They hold $12 trillion of assets. So they're about a third of the U.S. capital market, maybe a quarter of the U.S. capital market uh, right now. So they've been around since the 1940s and are doing quite well. Indeed, if you look out there at the financial landscape, you'll see that the only parties that are really standing tall are the mutual funds. And so we should learn a lesson from that, that this is where safety lies in terms of uh, financial uh, 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 building a new financial uh, system. So how would the mutual funds under limited-purpose banking differ from the mutual funds that exist today? Well, just uh, there would be a couple different types of – there would be, there's be some – differences uh, in the sense that there would be some new mutual funds that would be issued by the existing mutual fund companies and the new mutual fund companies. The current mutual fund companies have are selling about 8,000 different mutual funds. Some of these things are investing in junk bonds. Some are invested in 
treasury bonds, treasury bills. Uh, you can short the long-term. Tr- you can buy all kinds of derivatives as well through mutual funds. So you can take all kinds of risk within the current mutual funds that are being uh, using the current mutual funds that are out there. But under limited purpose banking, we would have two new types of mutual funds. One would be a cash mutual fund. And a cash mutual fund would be very simple. You'd buy a share of a mutual fund that was a cash mutual fund, and all your money that was invested in that mutual fund would be held just in cash. So these cash mutual funds would turn into become the checking accounts under limited purpose banking. So Fidelity, for example, would say, here, I've set up a cash mutual fund. It's called the Fidelity Cash Mutual Fund. And you buy shares of this fund. If you put in $50 or $100 or $3,000 into this fund, the entire amount of money you put in will be held in cash. And it will be custodied because every mutual fund has to have a third-party custody. There's no possibility of a Madoff with mutual funds. And so a third party is going to hold your cash, and you know it's there. Now, you're going to have, you'll be charged a service fee, just like on any mutual fund, but you can write a check against your cash mutual funds. You can use an ATM machine, uh, use a debit card uh, to get out cash. You can use a debit card at the grocery store. So Because there's no question that every dollar in your account, there's a dollar backing it. So this is... Uh, the, the aspect of limited-purpose banking that connects to, to narrow banking, because narrow banking is a proposal that checking accounts or demand deposits be 100% backed by reserves. Well, in this case, it would be 100%, a dollar of reserves for every dollar of liability, which would be, uh, and liquid re- reserves, namely cash. So that would be one of the mutual funds that uh, the new system would, would offer. Uh, otherwise, there would be all kinds of the, the other 8,000-plus and then another type of mutual fund that would be offered would be insurance mutual funds. And the, the reason we want to run the insurance industry through uh, the same system is because the difference between insurance companies and banks is really just a matter of language. Banks are issuing, issuing securities and buying securities that are, uh, that are state contingent in the sense that what you get paid and what you have to pay depends on what happens in the real world. Just like insurance companies, when they sell a policy, a life insurance policy, it's contingent on your dying. That's a kind of a state of the world. So there's nothing fundamentally different. If you look at the theory of insurance, the theory of bank banking, you see they're doing the same thing. So there should be one set of, of rules for everybody. So insurance companies would be banks under... Th- limited-purpose banking, they'd have to operate just as mutual funds. So here's the question. How do you sell life insurance through a mutual fund? Well, it turns out it's very easy to do. Let's think about selling uh, maybe uh, 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 TIACREF wants to sell uh, life insurance policies to males who are 50 to 55 year old year, years old and have passed a health test. When you buy a policy, you have to at this age, you have to take a, a health test to, to be certified to be able to buy that policy. They could have a mutual fund for people that are in good health and a mutual fund that's for people in bad health. I'll just talk about the one that's set up for people who are in good health, males 50 to 55 years old in good health. Well, 
they would put their money into this TI Craft Mutual Fund by some date, let's say January 1st, 2010. So let's suppose that all of us in the room are males in this position, and uh, Bill here is the guy who's running the TI Craft Males 50 to 55 year old life insurance fund. He takes all our money and he's going to put it in six month treasury bills. Six months later, whoever dies, whoever among us dies, we get to collect the pot. That's to say, our survivors get to collect the pot. Those of us who don't die collect nothing. So those of us who, have di- who don't die have insured those of us who do die. Probably a small fraction of us are going to die, and we're going to get money from the rest of you who don't die, and consequently, that's why our survivors will get a pretty big number. Now, the important thing about this is that there's no insuring here of aggregate risk. There's no insuring the uninsurable, because if only 2% of us die, which might be the normal expectation, then those of us who die get a big payoff. If 10% of us die because swine flu has broken out over the six-month period, those who die are going to get that pot. But there's going to be the same pot, but it's going to be divided over more decedents. So the amount of paid out per decedent will be smaller. So there's an automatic natural adjustment of the payout to the aggregate condition, to the macro condition. By the way, those who put in more money into the pot, if they die, they'll get a bigger, they're going to get a payout that's proportional to what they put in. So you can buy more or less insurance in this structure, depending on how many shares you buy of this fund. Now, this type of insurance arrangement is called a tontine. And it's been around since about 1657. Uh, So this is nothing new that hasn't uh, been in existence. And we know for sure, because there's a third-party custody, that this insurance arrangement is solid, rock solid. The securities are there. The Treasury bills uh, are there. All his money, all the fund money was invested in Treasuries for six months. And then those who die get paid off. That's an example of life insurance mutual fund. Let me tell you an example of a credit default swap mutual fund. How could you set up credit? How could you run credit default swaps through a mutual fund? Well, pretty easy. Bill here is at uh, ABC Bank, and he decides he wants to sell a mutual fund. Credit, it's really a credit default swap uh, mutual fund on uh, General Electric bonds. There's a particular General Electric bond that's due in in uh, uh, 20, uh, 2010, and uh, or 20, let's say 2015, and Bill wants to uh, set up a mutual fund where people can basically buy and sell insurance on whether or not that particular bond defaults. So let's say all of us in this room want to participate in this fund. We all put money into Bill's fund, but we do it on, we have to make a choice when we put our money in. Uh, some of us will choose to get money out if the f- bond defaults. Others will put money in and get money out if the bond doesn't default. So we put the money in. Bill invests it in, in treasuries. It's a closed-end fund, so the fund ends after the money has been put in. 
So money, money's put in by some date, and then that's it. The, the money is invested in treasuries. And then we, we wait till 2015. And if the bond has defaulted by then, as soon as the bond defaults, the people that put the money in on the basis of it defaulting get the money out in proportion to what they put in, less the fee that Bill would be charging. So the other people will have bet that this bond will, will not fail. And they will lose all their money. So one group is insuring the other group. That's what's going on with insurance. We can have a very fancy, complicated financial system, but ultimately, it's people insuring other people, and, and there's people extending credit to other people. So this is how this would work. Uh, we can have, and that's, if you think about it, exactly what happens when you go to the racetrack. When you put money on a horse, say there's two horses running against each other, you put money at the window before the bet closes. Once the bet once the horse race begins, the window is closed. At the end of the race, whoever, whoever, whichever horse has won, those people who bet on that horse get all the money less a fee in proportion to what they put in. This is paramutual betting. It's been around since 1858 or so. Uh, so we can use these very simple systems to ensure that we're not insuring the uninsurable to make the system very transparent. Let's think about the mortgages. How would mortgages get financed in, under limited-purpose banking? Well, uh, John would set up in his bank, and every bank could, could sell all these types of mutual funds. There's no restriction. It doesn't have to be one bank that specializes in this or that. They can all sell all these different types of mutual funds. So John's bank would... Uh, 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 have a mutual fund. Let's say John's the, the money, the mutual fund manager for a uh, a mortgage uh, mutual fund that uh, closes, let's say, on January first, two thousand and ten. And he says to you investors who put money into uh, his fund, "I'm going to take your money and buy mortgages that I think are are good with your money, that they're good good bets," and Consequently, John will be funneling your money to people who are trying to buy homes. Now, there's a very important role for the government to play here, and it's really with respect to all the securities that the mutual funds would be buying, and namely that's a role of verification and disclosure and, and overseeing custody and rating. Because under limited-purpose banking, before John buys into his mutual fund a mortgage, that mortgage, which uh, Bill Mate has just bought, is buying a uh, building a, a house in uh, in Maryland, a uh, and uh, he needs to go to a bank to he needs to get funding for that. He wants to take out a mortgage. So John works for me in my bank. He's my mutual fund manager. So. Bill comes to me, I'm the guy at the bank, and he says, I'd like to borrow money to, to buy this house. I say, fine, fill out this form. He fills out an application form. I then transmit this form to a new federal agency called the Federal Financial Authority. It's kind of the equivalent of the FDA, but just for financial products. The Federal Financial Pro uh, Authority would look at this application, and they would do three, th four things. Well, they would, they would first of all, verify... Uh, Bill's income using IRS tax records. 
they would disclose this on the web, everything about this application. Wouldn't necessarily have to name Bill by name, but it would give enough detail so people uh, would know what the security really entails. They would verify the collateral value of this house that Bill wants to buy. They wouldn't necessarily have to do all the appraisals themselves, but do it was certainly some spot checking of appraisals so that we would know for sure that what it is that's backing this, this mortgage. They can also, the Federal Financial Authority would also hire independent rating companies with no conflicts of interest to rate the quality of this particular mortgage that's being applied for. So they could hire Fitch and Moody and uh, S&P and get three or four independent ratings and attach those to this application. And then it comes back to me, and I show it to, to John, my, say to John, look, would you like to buy this mortgage? He might say yes or no. If he does say yes, he buys it for his mutual fund, and then his mutual fund holds it. Or I might try and sell it to some other mutual fund. But this mortgage doesn't actually fund until a mutual fund buys it. So the bank, my bank, is never holding this mortgage. It's never at risk. I'm just playing the middleman. I'm the paper shuffler. That's what Wall Street will become, shuffler of papers, a safe shuffler of papers. But the guys running Wall Street right now will still make good income because they're going to become mutual fund managers, right? This John here was uh, Mr. Fudd running uh, – Lehman Brothers, now he, has, he says he can't do that anymore, but he can run a mutual fund. He can be hired by my bank as a mutual fund manager, and if he does well in picking good mortgages, given all the information uh, that he has available from the Federal Financial Authority, if he somehow exercises his own judgment and, and does a better job, he'll be able over time to show that his mortgage mutual fund has performed better for investors than other mortgage mutual funds and therefore he'll be able to charge a higher fee. So what you see is that we deal with the corporate governance problem that's plaguing the current system through connecting what the bankers actually do to real evidence of performance. Right now you can't tell what these bankers are doing except the fact that they're stealing. You know for sure they're stealing from the shareholders. You know for sure that they're uh, bribing directors of the bank to give them huge salaries by, by giving the directors of the bank huge fees for being directors. You know for sure that they're bribing the rating companies by giving them, you know, paying them high fees for doing the rating and giving them other kinds of business. So all that goes away with limited purpose banking. The rating is under, paid for by, strictly by the government. This is a public good. The rating of securities is really a public good. It should be done by the government. There's a good libertarian argument here for letting the government do this job, just like letting it provide missile defense. Uh, uh, the, uh, there's full disclosure in the system, and there's uh, a very clear job for bankers to engage in, which is to exercise their judgment if they, to the extent they have judgment. So to summarize, everything that's good and useful in our financial system, I think, can be achieved through limited purpose banking, but limited purpose banking can get us away out from under all these problems that we've, uh, that we're s sitting here uh, 
having experienced and may still experience. Under limited purpose banking, the FDIC could still stay in business, but it really wouldn't have much of a job because the cash mutual funds would be the only mutual funds that don't break the buck. Everything else would be marked to market. So the FDIC would not be insuring anything besides the cash mutual funds, but the cash mutual funds would be backed a dollar for dollar with reserves. And everybody would know fully what it is they're buying. The public can take as much risk as, or as little risk. If you as an individual want to be in a very safe investment, you would buy a mutual fund investing just in tri tips, treasury inflation protected bonds. And you're also free, by the way, to buy them directly from the, you know, there's nothing that says individuals can't buy securities, uh, individual securities. They don't have to necessarily just transact in mutual funds. I can go down and buy a, a bond from a, uh, you know, from a U.S. Treasury directly uh, under limited purpose banking, just like I can do it today. So that's the financial fix, and uh, we now very much welcome your reaction to it. Thank you so much. Commentary is a friend, Bill Poole, who is a senior fellow at Cato now, uh, formerly the president of the, of the Federal Reserve Bank at St. Louis, and before that, a colleague of mine as uh, um, another member of the Council of Economic Advisors in the first term of the Reagan administration. Bill? I want to begin by underscoring the importance of this topic. Uh, the left doesn't like the situation because it's grossly unfair, and it is grossly unfair for socialized risk and private returns. And the right doesn't like it because it's incredibly inefficient. When you socialize risk and you have private returns, there's too much risk-taking, and the uh, uh, resources are allocated inefficiently. And it is simply untenable to stay in the current bailout world that we're in there will be no stability in the long run because there are going to be borderline cases. Uh, I guess it's uh, 19 large banks that were subject to these stress tests and are presumably subject to being you know, fully uh, protected federally at the moment. Uh, but how about bank number uh, 20 and 21? If those get into trouble, it will be uncertain whether they will be bailed out or not. So the situation is really untenable for the long run, and I believe that it is not, in fact, in any way a partisan issue among economists. Economists that you might label on the right and the left uh, all understand that this situation can't be allowed to exist. The things that divide economists on the right and left are other dimensions of economic policy, and uh, I don't think that there is any division uh, across economists. Uh, maybe out in the far spectrum or something, uh, there's some divisions on this issue. Now, as I understand the uh, Kotlikoff-Goodman uh, proposal, I'll just call it the, J, uh, the KG proposal, it essentially transfers all the portfolio risk on assets from institutions, from banks, we'll call them, to the ultimate individuals who own those assets. And my concern with the uh, viability of the proposal, and incidentally, I, I think it's important that we uh, have lots of proposals uh, on the table and we figure out what we're going to do with the current situation. I'm saying that the situation is untenable, so I congratulate them on uh, working this out. 
But what fractional reserve banks do at present, I believe, um, sort of three, three main uh, functions. Uh, there's a maturity transformation. They can take longer-term assets and uh, turn them into uh, shorter-term liquid uh, liabilities. That's most clear with demand deposits, and clearly the assets uh, that a bank holds are not all uh, uh, payable on demand, although banks have a variety of mechanisms to, um, such as demand notes uh, and a lot of diversification and so forth. So there's maturity transformation, and it is indeed a, sh a source of instability, uh, a potential instability. Uh, secondly, there's an issue of divisibility here. A lot of assets come in very large blocks, and uh, they uh, make these very large blocks of assets divisible, and, of course, mutual funds uh, do the same. But uh, that is one of the functions of a bank also. So I can cash a check for $10, even though the assets behind the check are in uh, much larger uh, blocks. And then I believe that banks also have an important function in dealing with asymmetric information. Uh, bankers uh, become experts on the assets that they hold and on the, uh, the, uh, the, the issuers of those assets. Those are liabilities of somebody else. Uh, and they become uh, expert on uh, understanding the nature of those risks in a way that the uh, ultimate uh, individuals uh, um, these authors, uh, every one of us sitting up here, uh, can never do. So there's a specialization in the uh, exploitation of asymmetric information that is another function of what banks do. Now, I know that the argument here is to put all of that into the mutual funds and uh, have uh, no risk with the um, uh, w with a uh, with a bank or a financial institution uh, by itself, now I worry about the uh, the proposal uh, primarily because, and uh, I, I think Larry, uh, from our conversation uh, before we started here, may be a little surprised by my concern, uh, but I worry that it involves an excessive reliance on uh, on federal regulation. The uh, the federal uh, what do you call it, the uh, Financial, uh, federal Financial Authority. Federal Financial Authority, the uh, FFA, um, is going to define which firms are subject to this regulation. And uh, it would, um, for example, uh, might make it impossible uh, for Walmart to provide a lot of service. That's already an issue, as you know. And I think it's too bad that the financial industry has been able to squeeze Walmart out because Walmart would make banking services available to a wider segment of the population that does not now uh, use banks. But uh, the division, the separation of a financial firm from a non-financial firm is uh, not so easy uh, to figure out. And uh, every non-financial firm that deals with the public is dealing uh, with finance one way or the other because they're accept accepting payments for the provision of services or the, the sale of products. And um, so I think there may be uh, uh, many opportunities for companies uh, that are not uh, primarily financial firms to provide financial services. I also worry that the uh, process of, uh, of regulatory avoid avoidance 
which I, I think that this scheme would uh, would create. Uh, that's regulatory avoidance uh, is also, by the same token, uh, our protection from regulatory abuse. And we have many examples uh, in history where the um, uh, financial firms have uh, used the regulators to um, protect their own interests and to prevent uh, competitive forces from eroding specialized uh, interests that are aligning their own pockets. So uh, I believe that regulatory avoidance would be a part of this system, and it's not we, we need we can't approach this from the point of view that um, the people up here or in this room uh, are writing the legislation and enforcing it. The legislation is written in a democratic society with all sorts of special interests putting provisions into the law. And so I think that this is a potential uh, arrangement that would open up the possibility for lots of special interest provisions in the law that would turn out to be costly uh, and not in the consumer interest. Um, I think that the motivation uh, here is primarily driven by looking at the riskiness of the uh, of bank operations and perhaps not enough from the point of view of the consumers and the users of bank services. Um, it, 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 what, we, what we get out of banks uh, in the way of banking services is very important for both consumers and businesses in managing their daily affairs. And uh, I don't think it's actually uh, foreordained that the banking industry is going to be uh, inherently unstable. We have had certainly important episodes in our history of instability. The, um, the, the, the Great Depression became uh, produced banking instability because of the huge decline in prices. Uh, every, every fixed dollar liability can be made untenable by a sufficient fall in the price level. It increases its real value. And that's a lot of what happened in the Great Depression with the declining price level. And that's a consequence of monetary policy mistakes. It's not necessarily a consequence of the uh, instability of uh, fractional reserve banking. And then in the current episode, the prim primary problem has been uh, the, uh, the credit risk from these mortgage products that got spread around the world. And uh, I, my own take on the best way to address that is to make sure that banks have a lot more private capital at risk uh, to um, uh, provide the market discipline uh, rather than trying to invent a um, or develop would be a, probably a better term, a uh, essentially a narrow bank proposal. So I'm going to leave it at that and uh, we'll, I guess, have some general discussion. Thank you, Bill. John and Larry, do you want to respond? No. Yeah, I, I do. Thanks, uh, Bill, for those interesting comments. I um, let me let me uh, beg to disagree, though, on on several points you made. First of all, 
what we're seeing in the real world here is that the risks that uh, the banks and insurance companies were supposed to uh, to uh, keep us from uh, f- protect us from are coming back to being our risks, and that's not surprising. Fundamentally, uh, companies don't own assets, they don't own liabilities, and they don't bear risk. And fundamentally, it's people that own the wealth of the country, people that lend resources to each other, people that take on risk and bear it. Now, what we're seeing is in our current system is the pretense that you will be protected. Your money is safe. Put your money here with, uh, with us, and we will be able to take care of it for sure, and you won't be, you'll get it back for sure. Well, we're getting it back for sure in some cases by having to pay much higher taxes or have our kids pay much higher taxes to bail out these companies. So we are still bearing the risk ourselves through the tax system, and we shouldn't forget that. So I think the idea that this system that we've constructed is insulating us from risk is, is just not, a pro, is not true. Uh, what, it's, what it is is it's exposing us to a much greater risk because it's uh, taking a world where we have the potential for multiple equilibria and increasing the probability of switching from a good one to a bad one. We have set up a system that's extremely fragile. We need something that's stable where you can't have, uh, have the kinds of things happen again that we've seen happen. Uh, maturity transformation, I think that's an overstated uh, value of limit of fractional reserve fractional reserve banking i think that the reality is that in order to have that uh, maturity transformation ar- arise and to give people that need to get money on the short term be very liquid get a decent rate of return on investing and having to take the money out in the short term you need to have the federal government provide the insurance and the federal government is is not providing real insurance or providing dollar insurance so the actual models that support this as a beneficial a benefit to society require a form of government insurance of 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 uh, of these types of uh, uh, demand deposits that we don't actually provide uh, by the FDIC. The FDIC is not insuring our real balances; they're insuring insuring our nominal balances. And under limited purpose banking. All the assets that people hold, all the mutual funds would be liquid. They would be floating in the market. So if you ran into some trouble where you needed to get money to sell, uh, you know, for an emergency, you just sell your assets. Now, if everybody in the country were to get into the same kind of trouble, they all needed money at once, well, uh, the value of these assets might go down. And that might be viewed as, in some sense, a liquidity crisis. Of course, now the only real source of pooling that risk would be the government to come in and try and bail out the public sector, the private sector, by, for example, cutting taxes temporarily, or even intervening in these mutual funds and buying up those assets. Because uh, the, the government will have a lot of levers in this new world that they don't currently have uh, that they can engage in. But who would the government actually share the risk with? Well, it would be the next generation, be future generations. That's the only real advantage in risk sharing that the government has to provide here. The government's supposed to be around for longer than we are, and so they can share risk across generations. And limited-purpose banking allows them to get into that game. Uh, I think right now the way they're 
getting in that game is to make the risk for future generations worse because what they're doing is they're, in good times, uh, they're not saving up more resources for the next generation, and in bad times, they're leaving the build on the next generation. That's what we have. That's the kind of generational risk-sharing that we've got going on right now. It's not risk-sharing. It's expropriation. Uh, I don't think that this system would involve excessive government regulation at all because what we're doing is getting rid of all the different agencies. You don't need the control of the currency. You don't need state bank examiners. You don't need the Fed Treasury and the Fed to go, go into individual banks because anyone who goes into these banks will see they've got nothing at risk. You need to have one set of rules that says that a mutual fund, and we've got a set of rules written in 1940, the Investment Company Act, about how mutual funds operate. The government just has to supervise that there's third-party custody. Uh, and it has to do this rating and verification disclosure. So one federal agency, I don't see that um, we're going to have uh, a lot of political games being played. I think the mutual fund industry is working quite well, and there hasn't been a lot of – I don't think that uh, companies, corporations uh, like Hewlett-Packard – are going to turn into banks because the charters of those companies don't allow them to, to borrow money and, and invest in other companies willy-nilly or in other products. That would violate their, product, their, their uh, charters when they were incorporated. And if they did engage in that behavior, yeah, they would be deemed banks under limited-purpose banking and have to engage in those activities through mutual funds. So I don't see that that's a big issue. Um, the uh, last couple things... Uh, um, banks should have more private capital risk. That's uh, uh, an alternative view of how to get out from under the situation that we're now in, which is to tighten capital requirements in one way or another. And right now, uh, capital requirements are basically 10%. You could make them 20%, which is what the Volcker Group of 30 is proposing, which is a doubling of the ta capital requirement. You'd still have banks leverage 5 to 1% which means they could invest in very risky things and go under and leave the bill for taxpayers. So the problem that we have seen will very much continue if those kinds of proposals are adopted. That's where we're heading, which is to basically tighten up an, a, a failed system that can fail again and that is that, – that, uh, you know, not just uh, John and I think this, and Bill thinks this. He's also very concerned about the existing system. This is the, uh, an op-ed from yesterday's New York Times. The economy is still at the brink. So uh, these are two financial experts who think that uh, just maintaining the current status quo, tightening it up here and there, is not going to prevent these kinds of problems from happening again. We need to make sure that there are firewalls at each point in our system. And if you think about a life insurance fund, mutual fund, where they're not, you're not shoring aggregate risk, you're not insuring against a swine flu, well, the pot of money is it. That's available for the decedents. And if there's a swine flu, less is paid out per person. It's not like the taxpayer is responsible to cover uh, that calamity. But, it, but, but limited purpose banking also allows those who want to insure other people for the outbreak of swine flu to invest in a mutual fund that is betting on swine flu. Because you can have a mutual fund. The John's, um, my bank would have another John uh, set up a swine flu mutual fund or a mortality rate mutual fund where people put their money in on the basis of the mortality rate at the end of the year being above or below X percent. 
And if it's above, those who, who put it in on that basis take the pot. If it's below, those, the other guys take the pot. And you see that we, to the extent that we want to insure each other against aggregate risk, we can do that through this system. So this system is transparent, it's straightforward, it's safe, and it can uh, get us to, through the century. Thank you. Uh, Larry, one minor point. Uh, it doesn't seem to be any problem of creating a real insurance for deposits, and it would give the government a good bit better incentives. Why don't we just do that? When you say real... Well, part of the problem is that the government can't really insure for sure where the real economy is going to be. Because if there's a panic and there was a bank run, uh, it would have to use real tax revenue. And it doesn't know what the, you know, how the economy is going to perform in that state of the world. So there are even limits on what the government can do. The government can't uh, take an economy that's fundamentally uh, variable and know for sure what's going to be around to grab from taxpayers to cover uh, some occurrence. So I think there is some you know, fundamental difficulty in providing real balance insurance. It certainly, you could move in that direction, and that would make uh, the possibility or the prospects of a run today on the U.S. banking system much smaller. But the uh, the problem is that, as John started out pointing out, that the government is, is here kind of willy-nilly expanding its guarantees and promises. So the government is making insurance arrangements that are uninsurable because the government's capacity to really insure things in real terms is limited, right, by how well the economy performs. And our economy is going down the tubes, and it just is not going to be able to meet all these obligations if it keeps at it. I mean, Jagdish Gokhale and I and others have focused, uh, Jagdish much more recently than than me, on the enormous liabilities that the government has undertaken to deal with the next the baby boomers' retirement and uh, how deeply in, indebted we are to begin with, with the paying for Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security. So we're in no position to take on more commitments. We're in a position to get out from under and get something safe to put together. Bill? Just very quickly, one of the critical functions of financial services firms and financial markets is the division of risk-bearing. So you don't change the aggregate risk of hurricane damage, but you can insure your house, and somebody else bears that risk. That's one of the functions of financial firms in markets way back in the 19th century. Uh, and there, it's long been known that there are certain aggregate risks that cannot be insured. So standard insurance policy has had a nuclear war exclusion in it and, and things like that. And, this, and uh, swine flu would be another example that would, if uh, we had a sufficient outbreak, it would, uh, it would bring financial ruin to every life insurance company. So I think we've long understood that there are certain aggregate risks that are not insurable. But there are uh, routine, I'll say, uh, risks that are insurable, uh, are routinely insurable, and we lay off risk, and we have a pretty robust set of financial services arrangements and financial firms that uh, provide for specialization. Uh, you know, insurance companies, in fact, don't, don't very often go bust. AIG is, is an exception, and it was primarily uh, as a consequence of, uh, of not reserving, and also the uh, practice uh, 
of the counterparties and not requiring collateral against the positions. And so, and that was a consequence of a, of a market practice, which was an undesirable market practice of not requiring AAA companies to post collateral against their counterparty positions. And so, uh, it, a lot of these things, I think, have been handled successfully in the marketplace, and we want to be careful that we don't destroy um, the benefits that we are gaining through the specialization of handling risk. Questions and comments here, right here. As I have a few, uh, your analogy of uh, gas stations I thought was interesting uh, because uh, my father owned one and I worked in there for quite a while. Anyway, I think you're penalizing the honest people by prohibiting them from giving a guarantee for gas in the future because my father would never have cheated anyone, nor would I. So that should be, the customer should be there and be able to choose that if I'm honest, I get the business and Joe Blow down the street does not get it. So you're taking away the freedom of choice there. No, 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 not, not at all, not at all. If, you wanted, if your customers, what I'm trying to do is, is keep you from selling something you can't actually supply. But that's is, my business and that's your business as a customer and not the government's. Okay, but your customer would be free. No, it is, it is the country's business when... Uh, you are a critical financial intermediary, uh, critical productive intermediary that could bring down the entire country if yeah, all. No, I could bring down. Let me go. Well, not you as your little gas station, but if all the gas stations engaged in this, we would have a problem. So you, well, you're, some of the you gas your customers be should be allowed good. to. They wouldn't all fail. You and your customers under limited purpose banking could bet on gas prices to the extent that they wanted through the mutual funds. There's plenty of opportunity to engage. There's 8,000 mutual funds out there today. You could do it this minute. Okay, let me go to the deposits. I. <laughs> As a, as a customer of a bank, it charges. It costs me nothing now to have a checking account. Under your proposal, the bank has to put mine in cash, and now it's going to charge me a fee. That's, that's one bank, fine, I'm safe. But as an individual, why can't I choose another bank that would do something else and, and take some risk, but it doesn't cost me anything? I think that's a really freedom of choice. In fact, I would go to another extreme and say, why have any regulation in banks at all? We're all smart people. Why don't we decide what bank we like? And we'll take you take a conservative one. I'll take a little more aggressive one. And someone because will take the bank. Else. Here's the reason: because the banks get big, and then they, they leave the then they. Yeah. Well, the good ones got big, and they were the bad ones, and they were the bad ones, and they put the entire country down the tubes. Okay. So this has failed, and we have seen the moral hazard. You can think about an odd. Idealized world where a, a Lehman and a City and a Fannie and a Freddie and these guys all get into trouble, and because the guys running the country are libertarians, and they say, "Too bad, guys, you're on your own." That doesn't happen in this real world. So I want to set us set up a system where we have firewalls, where we let your customers and you have freedom of choice about what you want to invest in, but we don't we not imposing bills on unforeseen for ta on innocent taxpayers who never got. Who I never knew anything about this was this coming down the road. Well, I can't teach the politicians not to take bribes, and that's what you got. Okay, I can't teach that. Um, I, I, maybe it's been too long since I've had Econ 101, but I'm very confused by a couple of your terms, uh, Mr. Kotlikoff and Goodman. On the one hand, you said that uh, all banks would be nothing but intermediaries. 
And, and, and you also said that uh, banks can't have risky assets. Are you saying that banks cannot make banks themselves cannot make loans? Because if you make a loan, you have an asset. Yeah, banks don't make loans. Mutual funds make loans. Mutual funds make loans. Banks don't make loans. No bank could ever uh, lend money for the purchase of inventory uh, to a business or make a mortgage loan or anything. No, but mutual funds will will uh, yeah that's absolutely yes. right yes. Yes. yes yes the answer is yes, yes. Ridiculous. Sorry. all right <laughs> it's not it's not ridiculous I want to deal with a person who is who is who is going to do something with my money not not you know not an intermediary well you no let's yeah the, you would do deal with a mutual fund you would deal with the guy who's who would be uh, buying up your mortgage would be a mutual fund manager and. By the way, when you take out a mortgage today, it's typically going to be sold to a, a lot of the, the problem. No, the problem is not the securitization. Let me just. Dis- dis- Look, let me let me get to an underlying issue that's been raised here, which is uh, the idea that we're in 1930 and that Bailey Savings and Bank is floating around. Is we actually have Bailey Sa- Savings and Bank? You remember the Wonderful Life? Yeah. Jimmy Stewart was the actor. And that's a concept of banking that doesn't exist. Jimmy Stewart is dead. Let's be clear about this. And it's, he's not coming back to life. What we have here is a very modern financial system that needs to have securitization. We don't want to go back to the 1930s financial system. We want to have moder- modern, modernity, a modern financial system. The problem with the, what happened here was not securitization. The problem was with the initiation, the fact that liar mortgages were issued that nobody was checking, the, fact, the problem with the rating, the problem with the corporate governance. All these problems are addressed in limited-purpose banking. All those concerns get crossed out. They get wiped away with what we're doing here because the government is going to be verifying that mor- your mortgage, uh, your income as a mortgagee. We'll, we'll know for sure from the tax records, what exactly you earned and whether you could actually pay this back. Bert? Um, Bert Ely, banking consultant. Um, a, a question about this federal uh, financial authority. Uh, how big a bureaucracy would it be in terms of number of employees? Uh, and uh, related to that, if it's going to be the certification agency, uh, what kind of guarantee is it going to provide for its certification? In other words, if it makes a judgment about a mortgage and says it's a good mortgage and it turns out to be a fraudulent mortgage, uh, what obligation is the, uh, the, federal, the federal government, the taxpayer, going to have to make good on its uh, mistakes? Just kind of a follow-on question. Have you all noticed at all the parallels between the limited-purpose banking, as you've presented here today, and uh, Islamic finance Yes. Uh, which is based on the law of Sharia, which in turn is based on there are the some connections. There are some connections. It's not that it's not one to one. There are some connections. Close. Uh, the uh, the federal finan- financial authority, just like the FDA, would um, uh, do some things and not do other things. It would do things that it. Well, I'll just say what it would do. It would not approve a loan. It would not disapprove a loan. It would put out information that's about the loan, about this gentleman's mortgage. We would know his income. We would, they would verify the appraisal value of his home. They would disclose it on the web. Uh, they would check, uh, and, and that, that's basically it. But then they would also hire independent rating companies to provide alternative ratings. So it would never be the FFA says that rates his mortgage as 
AAA. It would be the FFA has paid for independent rating companies, maybe four or five, who would be hired at auction, you know, based on a competitive bid, to provide their opinion about his creditworthiness. We'd also have FICO scores that the F, the FICO, publicly available FICO scores, which the FFA would make public. So we would be able to look up this mortgage. Here's the FICO score. Here's the income history. Here's the appraisal value, and here's the five ratings that we've achieved would ab- obtained. Be for no, FFA. the taxpayer would not be liable for anybody's mis- any of it. Right. Well, again, the public, the FFA is providing a public service here to the extent of its ability. Just like the FDA says, we're not responsible if this drug that we approved hurts somebody. This is the best we know. This is what we know about it. And by the way, there's these other drugs that we're not approving that are herbal medications. You can take them, but at your own risk. We haven't done any clinical trials. And there might be some people who come to the FFA to get a mortgage who have no earnings history. And we'd say, and they'd say, look, this is a person with no earnings history. And uh, but the answer to your question is yes, it could be wrong, and that's why people would be free to to ignore what it says. Yeah. Bill, may I may I offer a quick comment? Uh, I, I want to emphasize the importance of a point that Larry made um, a, a few moments ago. When we have failure of a large financial institution, it does have costs that go far beyond the uh, costs that are borne by the shareholders and the customers of the bank. And we have seen these costs spreading across the society. There are important externalities to the failure of a large financial company. But there is another uh, way uh, to address those costs, which would be a much more traditional way. It's through the uh, tax system. Now, clearly, these companies got into trouble because over-leveraged households took out mortgages that were then held in over-leveraged investment banks. That was sort of the core of the problem. So what we need to do is to reduce the incentive for leverage. And a way to reduce the incentive for leverage would be to phase out the deductibility of interest on all tax returns. Now, that won't eliminate leverage. There will be some people who will still want to borrow even though the interest is not deductible. But it would work very much in the right direction of reducing the amount of leverage in the system and making the system more stable than would otherwise be the case. I think it would be an approach that would be relatively easy to implement in terms of the mechanics of doing it. It would be probably no more difficult politically than the uh, proposal that um, uh, Larry uh, has uh, put forth. And I think it would be much simpler to uh, to administer. Well, we should... Uh learn from our quiet neighbors up north. Uh, in Canada, a mortgage interest is not deductible. Mortgages are not non-recourse loans. Uh, they, have, uh, they typically require a 20% down uh, on mortgages. Uh, and they, their five biggest banks are, are in very good financial shape with no, no trouble up there. And uh, Paul Volcker has given a stamp of approval on uh, that general approach. I just want to make uh, one quick comment about the, the transition. Uh, this may – Bill suggested this would be pol- as politically difficult to implement as getting rid of the interest mortgage deduction. I don't – th- get rid of all interest deductions. Okay, all interest deductions. I don't think that's the case. I think you could move to limited-purpose banking pretty much overnight by requiring every financial company to be to become a mutual fund by taking the 
demand deposits and converting them into cash mutual funds. So giving people who own a demand deposit shares in a cash mutual fund, having them backed 100 percent, there's more than enough excess reserves now to cover what's needed to back dollar for dollar the cash mutual funds that would be set up. Demand deposits are about $405 billion. We've got about $805 billion in excess reserves in the system right now. And then you tell financial companies, guys, uh, banks, you can't uh, buy any more financial assets at the margin, and nor can you borrow to invest at risk. So, But you now are in the business of selling mutual funds, so get to work at that. And over time, take the cash flow that arises from your existing assets and pay it back as dividends to your shareholders and let them then... Uh, put the money into mutual funds. So we can have a smooth transition, which, uh, if you like, makes the existing practice of the bank zombies, but makes them gazelles with respect to running mutual funds. You had a question. Uh, uh, This is slightly off subject, but I've been dying to ask you a follow-up question to a talk you gave to a group of CA economists in the fall of 2000. Okay. About about the long-term budget outlook. Which, You're patient. You could have emailed me. <laughs> but at the time, the budget was projected to have a surplus this decade of $4.5 trillion, and you said, your analysis said that was not enough uh, to cope with the retirement of the baby boomers, and we needed a fiscal adjustment of 2% of GDP. And since then, we got the Bush administration with its view of deficits that they don't matter, according to, in Cheney's words. Right. And now we've got the recession and the stimulus program. So my question is, if you thought the budget outlook was bleak in 2000, what do you think now? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, we're really in a very grave situation. We need to, um, uh, the Bush administration was the most profligate, fiscally irresponsible administration in, in history, as far as I can tell, and did has done untold damage to the next generation. It's not that you know, Medicare Part D is important. We, we need to have a health care system that uh, ensures everybody. There's no question about it. But we don't, can't spend an ever larger share of GDP doing it. So I have a proposal called uh, the health care fix, which I've got a book called the health care fix. Uh, it's called the medical security system. It's a short book. Read that. I've got a proposal to fix the tax system, uh, which others have. It's a modified version of the fair tax. And uh, which would have, have us all have an effective tax rate of 18%. Uh, but very progressive tax system because there will be a demigrant associated with it, which is part of the fair tax. There's a very simple proposal for how to fix the, the Social Security system called the Personal Security System, which 150 economists, including five Nobel laureates, endorsed. We, d- we developed this. I, Jeff Sachs and I developed this about a decade ago. So there are simple structures, including the financial fix here, that can uh, transform our country and get us on the right, what we, on the right uh, uh, course. But what we have down in, uh, in, uh, over at the White House is some very smart economists, some brilliant economists, but they don't necessarily have the balls that, that is needed to get this job done, to really put the economy on a fir- firm footing to move ahead. We have to take some very, you might call them radical moves, but they're not radical. It's not radical to jump out of a boat, uh, uh, out of a car when it's uh, going over a hill. You had a question. Last question. Yes. Thank you. In closing, I just wanted to add a superfluous sidebar to something that you that you had just said about uh, the our friends up north. It seems ironic that uh, TD Bank, which is Toronto Dominion, 
has seems to be doing very well uh, in his, its expansion here in Washington, D.C. area. So are they going to bring some wisdom from up north in, in the way that they do business? Maybe, you know, the Canadians, you know, can, Canadians are probably in some sense able to be uh, in the world of uh, Bailey's uh, Savings and Loan because that community, uh, that culture is quite different. But we can't go back to that. We can't uh, start telling poor people that they can't borrow with 5% down when they're used to doing it. We have to get something in place that's actually safe for our society. That's an American answer, not a Canadian solution. Okay, well, thank you all very much. Uh, there is lunch upstairs, and we can continue this conversation or talk about other interesting topics upstairs. Thank you. Great. Thank you.